0: Welcome capital raisers. Sean Klinkhammer was a private money lender who started a fund to lend, to build to rent developers and eventually became a developer himself. We dove into the BTR space here in AZ on the show. Are you guys ready to raise shout out to invest next my investor portal of choice and the family office club, get it for $2,000 off by mentioning the capital raiser show at FamilyOffices.com, or feel free to pay full price. With that, it's Capital Razor Show, episode 287, and it starts now. Rock and roll, I got Sean Clinkhammer on the Capital Razor Show. Welcome, my friend. How you doing, brother?
1: Thanks, Ruben. I'm doing great today. Great to be with you on your podcast.
0: Yeah, thanks, man. So we met at the Family Office Club. Great events that they have. They actually are sponsors of the show. So love working with the Family Office Club. They power all of the things that we do. And I want to introduce you to a good friend that lives here in Phoenix, Arizona, where I'm based out of. And we're going to talk shop about Build to Rent and john has got a hard money fund. He's also a capital raiser. So we're going to dive into a lot of topics. But for the audience that has never met you, Sean, can you tell us a little bit about your background, how you got involved in real estate and raising money and built to rent and everything else?
1: Yeah, you bet. Well, I grew up in a real estate family. My parents did development real estate in Canada. To be honest, at the time, I thought that's not really what I want to do for a variety of reasons. So I came back to real estate in my 20s. I had a good friend who was investing in real estate. We were working together in a nonprofit as volunteers, and he just had a huge amount of freedom and impact and joy in his life. And real estate investing was the source of that, empowered that. So I was all in on real estate investing. That was 20-something years ago. I started fixing, flipping, lease options, rentals. I was a hard money lending borrower for years. When I discovered that, I was like, I want to be a lender someday. That's kind of my dream is to become a lender. And so I started lending myself. And then I formed a fund because a pooled fund is way better to do that and raise capital. And then we lent on some build to rent projects. I was one of the first hard money lenders in Arizona lending on build to rent, saw the success. And the best borrowers I've ever worked with asked me, can we form a fund and scale this and build a lot more build to rent? So that's how our build-to-rent fund, which is called Delos Fund, came to be is I was lending to these awesome developers. They were the borrowers. I was the lender. And they said, let's scale this up and do it big. And so that's how I got into the build-to-rent world. I'm a little bit newer to the build-to-rent world. I've been lending to it for years. Most of my capital-raising experience historically has been with the hard money lending fund.
0: Cool. So we talk a lot about funds and A lot of my audience has been familiar with build to rent in general, because I myself am a build to rent developer. There's a lot of misconceptions, just a lot of kind of confusion. People are freaking out over the economy right now. Lending has gone insane over the last 18 months. So tell us, how about we start with a little bit of background of what's going on in the economy? Why should people consider build to rent right now? versus some of the other asset classes from your perspective, tell us what are your thoughts, your base thoughts?
1: Well, big picture historically, most people probably listening know that real estate is where a huge amount of wealth is made over the seasons and real estate can have short-term corrections and pain, but over the long run, I don't know anybody who's done real estate for long-term and hasn't done really well. Then you dive into rental properties and rental properties are absolutely amazing because it generates regular income. You have flexibility on your exit. So if you have general income, the income can go up or down, but you know you're going to have income, and you have an asset, you have a product that ultimately people need. People need housing, and they need to either rent or buy that house. And so when you're in the rental property business, you really get to service both sides of that. And big picture, I think there's two things about Build to Rent. The first is that we know from COVID that office, unfortunately, has been really hammered, and we're seeing some really scary stuff about office around the country. And we know that retail took a big hit during COVID. A lot of that money, institutional money, started finding residential rental property, particularly build to rent. And that's been game changing. And when those big institutional money got into it, they were buying onesie, twosie rental homes all over the place. But when the beauties scattered and they're old properties and they're buried and they're hard to manage and they made it work and they made a lot of money with it. So it's not like it didn't work, but build to rent. The way you and I do it, Ruben, you know is way better because now you have subdivisions where it's all single owner. They're all stay managed. Like the beauty of that for institutional money to own it as an asset class and you can deploy now billions of dollars, even trillions. In fact, D.R. Horton just sold 4,000 homes for 1.5 billion with a B like just just came together in the last few weeks. It's one of the most recent deals. And I was talking to the guy who made that deal. It was fun to kind of hear what's going on. But the REITs took a little bit of a pause. As you probably know, the last year or two, they weren't buying as much. This, I think, is the front end of the REITs are getting back into buying the asset class right now. So big picture, institutional money, loves build to rent. And that's only going to come more and more, I believe, especially as we're going to continue to see pain in the commercial real estate market, particularly office. And then secondarily, apartments, you and I have talked about apartments in a lot of areas are getting overbuilt. Some areas they're underbuilt, so it's really dependent on the area. But single family really is a different asset class from apartments, even though most big picture, they put it all in the same thing. They say it's multifamily. But think about this. This is the easiest way to see it. If you were going to rent a house, any of our listeners, and you had the money, you could afford a single family home with a garage and a yard versus an apartment, who wouldn't do that? It's a totally different, yes, it's commercial, yes, it's multifamily, yes, it's rental property and residential, but it really is a different subclass, at least, that it's a single-family home. And we are underbuilt, I firmly believe, and see all kinds of data supporting. We're way underbuilt for single-family build to rent, certainly in Arizona, and I think in many states where there's a demand for it, severely underbuilt. So I think we got a big, I think, 5, 10, maybe 10-plus year run where the demand will exceed the supply of build-to-rent.
0: Can you give us a description of the difference between build-to-rent and build-to-sell? Because a lot of people are saying, hey, you know, the housing, the developers, the people that are building houses are slowing down. The prices of houses are coming down and they have to do all these crazy things to entice buyers, including mortgage rate buy-downs and all these other things. And they're just cutting into their profits. That affects the builders, but does it affect the build to rent guys? I think there's a lot of confusion about is all development the same when it comes to houses or right. are there some specific advantages to doing build to rent subdivisions, not build to sell? Simply
1: put build to rent gives you the best of both worlds. You get to rent and sell, which is our plan in Delos fund. We rent them for a few years and then we sell them. So build to rent done well, I think gives you both options and this actually ties back to the prior question. The other significant thing about build to rent is we have a housing shortage in the country, and it's massive. It was 6 million homes at the last official report I saw a while back across the country, and that's just on the purchase side. But what happens when rates go high and people don't want to buy as much, what we're experiencing now, so interest rates, is if they still need a home, then they're going to rent. So a person who needs a place to live is either going to rent or buy, and The builders, if they're going to build to sell, they're dependent on that market. Well, if they're going to build to rent, then now they can rent it and then sell when the timing's right. So, simply put, rent when the rent is the best, sell when the sale is the best. And a build to rent developer can exit by selling it as a rental property, which is our primary strategy sell it all in one block to a REIT and they buy it as an income stream on a cap rate. But I would highly recommend that developers plat the properties individually meaning every property because i know a lot of built renters developers don't we've done that that allows you you could sell them as individual homes so right now we can sell our houses for a higher price on a cap rate to a reit then we could sell them to a homeowner but if that ever flips and the homeowner who wants to live in the house would pay a higher price than the reit no problem we can shift it and we control the hoa as the owner so we just changed the hoa from a rental community to an ownership community, and as those leases come up, we can sell off the individual properties. It's easy to transition from rental community to sale. It's much more difficult to go the other way, from sale to rental. So when you start as a rental property, you get to have that rent for as long as you deem it's optimal for the fund and the objectives, but then you can convert it and sell it. Either sell it all to one buyer or sell your individual homes. So there's a lot of flexibility. You were asking about home builders. Yeah, home builders, if they're gonna build and sell to an individual buyer, those are individual transactions depending on each buyer and the interest rate at that time. When you build to rent, you get to rent them for as long as you want. And then you're just looking for who's the buyer gonna buy that. And the timing might take longer, but you can sell hundreds if or thousands of homes in one transaction, build to rent. Whereas to sell thousands of homes when you're building them to home buyers, you got to do a thousand transactions. A lot more work and risk and transactions. To me, it's Yes, it's home builders building a home, but is it going to be a rental or is it going to be sold immediately? It could be both over its lifespan, but the builder has a really different risk threshold and timing and pace. Here's another really practical example. Builders in Arizona that are building to sell, build very slow, small amounts at a time, like five at a time, for example, because they don't want to have a lot of specs. As build to rent developer, we're building like 150 home subdivision. We'll build 50 at a time, because we're gonna rent them as soon as they're ready. So we don't have to stagger them. There's good rental demand. And so by the way, that's very attractive to subs too, because if your subs come in and you're a traditional builder and you say, hey, come and build five houses. They're like, ah, it's kind of a pain or whatever. You say, come build 50. You can go around our whole subdivision, do the whole bit, bring as many crews as you can fit in the subdivision. The builders love it. So we're getting really good pricing on our labor and construction because builders, contractors love to build a lot of homes at one time. It's much more efficient for a good sub.
0: Now, this is something that you brought up when we were hanging out a couple of months ago, which is the concept that obviously there's a lot of institutional money. They want to buy a brand new asset of multiple homes, all in one location. So it's not scattered, one property manager, one leasing agent, all of that good stuff. But I'm curious about one particular thing that you said to me that I was like kind of blown away by, which is people, institutions better said, or these REITs, they'll actually pay a premium to buy bulk packages. And you would think the opposite would happen. Whereas if you have three 100 unit subdivisions and you put try to sell them all together, the institutions would want a discount for buying that much at one time. But you said the opposite is the trend that you've seen which is they'll pay more than they would for an individual subdivision. Tell us about that concept.
1: We learned it with our first two developments in Phoenix that were built to rent. They were like 17 homes and 30 homes, different parts of the Valley. The same REITs ended up coming after them, multiple cash offers, bidding up. And then the timing was going to be different. Like this one, they were going to be a couple months apart. Well, the REITs said, well, we'd really rather buy both together and put them in the same transaction. So they delayed it and had some additional costs that paid more, but they were happy to do it so they could buy it all together. And let me fast forward to twenty twenty three. What we've heard from the REITs, what our broker tells us, what we've confirmed and seen in the transactions, and think about it from an institutional money standpoint: REITs have a lot of money to deploy. They tend to raise money like capital raisers. Ruben, and you're in your, my world. We might raise money at a hundred thousand or a million at a time. They're raising. In way bigger tranches. So let's just think billions, which might be on the high side. If you've got billions of dollars to deploy, you can't mess around with small subdivisions and $20 million deals or $50 million deals. You wanna go really big. So the number the REITs have told us is 500 homes. If you can get us 500 homes at one time, we'll pay a premium for that. And they're quoting about a 15 to 20% premium higher if you have 500 homes in one portfolio together. It might be multiple subdivisions but they want to close it in one transaction. That's a big premium, and there's two reasons. The first I already mentioned, is just the amount of capital that they need to deploy. But the second is the due diligence. Imagine the due diligence work on a couple hundred homes. Let's just say 200 homes. That's a lot of due diligence, all the work. The due diligence on 500 or 1,000 homes isn't that much more, assuming you're in similar markets, similar sizes. A lot of the due diligence just scales. And so it's much more efficient for them time, energy-wise, due diligence, all the people and processes that need to approve that transaction for institutional money. There's just a lot of economy of scale to do it at a bigger dollar value. So those are the two reasons why I think the two biggest reasons why I think that's the case.
0: Okay. So tell us about your specific build to rent model. You're holding on to them for a few years after they're built and then you're selling them individually. There's obviously multiple exit strategies including selling the entire subdivision. What is your reasoning behind your specific model?
1: Couple of things we are good at building and we're vertically integrated. So the more homes that we can build, that creates efficiencies and generates value in our fund and profit and return for the investors. So for us, our target's 500 homes at least. We want to build 500 homes because that's better than just building, like I said, smaller amounts. Also, per our last question, the 500 homes, we believe can generate a big premium and a pop on that. The other reason is in Arizona, we have a spec. Builder tax. If you build a brand new home and sell it, you're going to pay the pretty significant tax. But if you rent it for two years, as soon as it's been rented two years, that tax goes away, mm-hmm. which means that as the fund, that immediately goes into the profit, into the return performance category. So we capture all that money instead of paying it to the government, it goes back into the fund and the return for our investors. So we hope to get as many homes as we can rented for two years. We may not get them all. But at least get as many as we can, which increases the return of the fund. The other thing that allows you to do is the exit is really driven by rents. There's not a whole lot we can do to control and cap rates, which we also can't control, but we can time, meaning like we can figure out when's the best cap rate time to sell. And when you're renting and you have that income and you have a good system for it, now you can wait. Is it a month from now, six months from now, a year from now, three years from now? So you can have the patience because you don't have a non-revenue producing assets sitting there just costing you, right? Like a vacant home. So once we get the rent income from it, now we can get the right portfolio size. We can negotiate, be patient on that side and pick the ideal time to sell for what's best for the fund.
0: Fascinating. Okay. Good stuff, man. Let's also talk about Arizona specifically. So, you know, I brought up on the show a couple of times, built to rent is very different in the Southeast than it is in Portland, than it is in Kansas City versus Arizona. I haven't really met a lot of Arizona built to rent guys. One of the reasons I was so excited to meet with you because I'd love to do built to rent here at some point in time. We like the Southeast because land is super cheap and the cities are in pro growth mode. So they're helping you get across the finish line with engineering and entitlements and all of the zoning and surveys and everything else. To a pretty good extent, they're not perfect. But what's your experience in Arizona as it compares? I know that you're not doing build-to-rent in other places. I'm not sure if you're hearing anything out there, any rumblings of what's going on in Florida, build-to-rent versus other areas. Tell us about why you like Arizona and why you plan to stay here.
1: Well, I've lived in Arizona most of my adult life, almost 30 years now. And so I've just seen this explosive growth in the state and people come here. They love the weather. They love the economy. Obviously not the summer. The summer stinks, but it's a short, bad season. And then we got beautiful weather most of the year. Overall, it's pretty affordable and traffic isn't as bad. It's fairly safe. Schools are decent. So in terms of just, and what I saw is even during recessions and crashes and tough economic times, Arizona was still growing, obviously not as fast, but still growing. So real estate's all about supply and demand. And if you can have increasing demand from population growth, that's a really good part of the equation. We have infill pockets, which we've done some infill, and then we're also doing some kind of on the edge of town where we can get bigger yeah. parcels. Both has been very successful for us, so the infill stuff has done tremendous, but you can't build 500 homes infill, right? It's smaller projects, so we're now doing some bigger projects. So Arizona, we have low property taxes. Our government in general is been very pro-business and pro-development, and nobody likes having an individual rental home right next to them if you own your home. But the idea of build-to-rent, where it's an entire subdivision, ours are gated and they're like block wall around them. Neighbors like them. Cities like them. Obviously, businesses like them. The grocery stores, restaurant, commercial likes having those residents nearby. And the cities love the added revenue. They make more from a rental home and a build-to-rent project than they do from owner-occupied houses. So the cities really like them. We've had great experience working with the cities in Phoenix. But ultimately, our rents are rising. People want to live here, and the REITs like it as a asset class. They like it for Arizona. So, for all those reasons, I love build to rent in Arizona, and it's a great market for us for build to rent.
0: Cool, man. Let's shift into the capital raising. You mentioned that there's some very unique things that you can do for development that you can raise in your own PPM for your own development. Tell us about your experience, your trajectory, everything that's happened along the way, what you've learned or at least some items of interest, as you've been scaling in your capital raising, what have you learned? What are the different unique kind of structures that you can put in place to fund but with both debt and equity, your different BTR subdivisions?
1: The first I would say is the Reg D, particularly, I think it's, I can't remember if it's 506C or D, I think it's 506C, but it is the Reg D
0: Accredited investors. Mm-hmm.
1: Exemption for accredited only. And we do the higher standard one where we have to verify that an investor is credited. So we are credited. So we either have to have a CPA or financial advisor sign it or we have to get some documents. So it's a little higher standard. But in exchange for that, the SEC lets us, they call it general solicitation, but it really mm-hmm. means we can market to the public. We can market anywhere we want podcast, website, social media, anything we want, as long as we only accept accredited investors and verify them, so a higher standard, now we can market to the public. We can only accept accredited, but now we can market widely. That's been huge for us, and it's a little extra work to verify every investor is accredited. But for me, the upside of marketing public is tremendous. So I really love that. Second, I would say is looking at debt sources. So as you mentioned, Ruben, we have a hard money lending fund. It's called Clink Loans Fund, K-L-I-N, Clink. So the website's clinkloans.com, K-L-I-N-K, loans.com. We started, as I mentioned, lending to build-to-rent developers here in town. And for an acquisition and a horizontal, like for construction, horizontal and vertical, hard money is a great option. The delta between bank financing and hard money isn't as high as what it used to be. More importantly, we move quick. We know our pub. We know the collateral, the assets here in Phoenix. Now, our fund only lends in Arizona, so I wish I could help listeners all over the country, but right now we're Arizona only, but we'd be happy to lend on build-to-rent and all kinds of other investment properties. So hard money lending or private lending is a really good debt tool that's a piece of it. Then what we do is take our projects to Ackman, Ziff, and they broker it out for financing for our takeout, usually either during our vertical or cash out once the project's done, and that gets us cash out and gets our rate locked in down and lower. So that's kind of been our process is start with hard money and then convert it to either a construction during vertical or just a permanent loan once it's leased out near the end of the project. But within our funds, I've learned that we can create debt positions. And this has been really powerful for us. So let me explain it on the hard money lending side, and then I'll explain on the build to rent side. On the hard money lending fund side, investors give us capital we pay about 9.4%. That's what our investors earn. Mm-hmm. They're in an equity position. We create another position that's called senior debt, which is in first position, so more secure, more liquid, and we pay lower rates on that. We'll pay like 5 to 7% for debt, and it's much lower LTV, lower risk, but it's a private position. Originally, I was going to go to banks for it, and I got some bank quotes, but by the time you get all the fees and the time and they wanted appraisals and this, that, and the other, It was actually my attorney at the time said, hey, we've got a bunch of funds, a couple of different sources, we'll lend it to you at this rate. Does that work? And I'm like, heck yeah, that's great, way easier than working with a bank. So it was a debt position within our fund, and you could go to a bank for it. We just created it in the PPM, the ability to have a certain amount. We limited it by percentage. So in other words, percentage of the fund is going to be this amount of debt. So that limits the risk of it to investors that are essentially moving to a junior position within the capital stack. So that just gives us the ability to get debt from anywhere, including investors. I've even seen PPMs since then that just literally have two classes of shares. They have an equity share, and then they have a debt share. And in the future, future funds, I think I'll use something like that. So then you can just raise it. And the other thing I've found is that investors, think about this, most investors have kind of at least, they usually have more, but at least two buckets of money. One bucket is like low risk, protect the principal, and just get some income. Well that fits really well for debt I can say to that investor hey that bucket of money put it in our debt position it's lower Ltd lower risk it's more liquid so you can get to it faster and you're happy with lower yield then you have another bucket which is the longer term money the growth money I want to make more on this money so I'll take a little more risk I'll have less liquidity so now let's if I had a fund that only had equity position I go to an investor they go okay great I'll do equity or I won't But if I have two positions and I say to that investor, hey, you like this deal, you understand the deal we're in, well, do equity, that's the highest yield, but you could also put some money with us in debt. You've already underwritten the deal, you've looked at all the stuff, you've asked all the questions, you've done your thing, and if you can put some money in a debt position that's lower risk and higher liquidity, now they can, instead of just giving this amount, let's say they were going to do this amount to equity, they might now go, okay, that amount, plus I have money from this other bucket that I'll put in the debt position. It seems maybe counterintuitive, you have, you're have you putting more money in this deal, but when you're in debt versus equity, you get to kind of mix that risk-reward depending on their objectives and their liquidity and their investment needs and goals and comfort level. So simply put, by offering both equity and debt positions to investors, I think you raise more capital. And that gives me more connecting points with investors. I'm solving more of their problems. I'm helping them grow the long-term money, the big growth stuff, but I'm also helping them with it could be the money that I need for my kid's college next year or a wedding in a few years, or we're going to put a pool in. So I need some more liquidity on it, but I don't want to just get 0% in my bank savings account right now or 0.5, right? I can offer people 5% on a debt position. It's like a high yield money market, very low risk the way it's secured in our fund. So I just find simply it raises more capital and is efficient and helpful for you know, us as fund managers and developers.
0: But how do you deal with the objection of, hey, I'm looking to, ca- I want cash flow. I, like cash flow is king. I only want to invest in things that cash flow. Does one of either of your options provide a cash flow option from day one? Because dirt obviously does not cash flow.
1: Yeah. Our build to rent doesn't cash flow. So after three years, once we have properties built and renting, we start paying distributions dividends. But if something doesn't cash flow for three years, most investors say it doesn't cash flow. Like <laughs> that just isn't good enough. So yeah, that's really long-term money. We tell people that's a 5-year lockup. It'll pay dividends after a few years, but don't count on any money from it. Our hard money lending fund is optimal for people who want cash flow and income because we charge our borrowers pay the loan payments every month, and so we pay our investors every month, and they love it because it's just very regular cash flow. And so hard money lending funds, that's a great Investment vehicle for an investor who wants income, who wants cash, who wants more liquidity. Build to rent can create some cash flow, but it takes a few years if you're starting in, from the development side because you got to get it built, then you got to get rented, you got to have enough operating reserve, and so in my experience, that's a couple of years till you get to the cash flow from build to rent.
0: Awesome, man! We could spend a lot more time talking about this particular. It's very fascinating some of the stuff that you're doing. Real quick, though, just before we jump into the lightning round, I'm curious about the capital stack in 2023. What we've seen in the multifamily space is you got traditional financing, and then you got either preferred equity or mezzanine debt, and then you have general equity, which can then be divided into different classes, A class and B class. One may be more of a cash flow play, and the other is a back-end appreciation play, there's a certain order of who gets paid first, and people don't always know what mezzanine debt is and how it can be used or when it is used. Give us a description of mezzanine debt for those that need a refresher or who have never heard the term.
1: Yeah, mezzanine debt sits in the middle, usually between your secured debt and your equity. So in our fund, Delos Fund, we have exactly those three positions. We have our first position, debt, which is often either clink loans, our lending, hard money lending fund, or a bank, or Ackman Ziff brokered. And then we have our equity, of course. Equity is going to get the highest yield. They're going to get all the profit. If the project does well, the profit all flows out to our equity investors. We just do one class of shares there, just to keep it simple. I've seen the two-class thing. I think it's creative and good, but ours, we like the simplicity of just one class of shares. But we did create a mezzanine debt. So mezzanine debt sits in the middle. In our case, it isn't secured like a deed of trust, so it's not a secured debt. But because it's ahead of the equity, if you look at the LTV, the value of the project minus our secured debt, it's a very secure position. And we pay a higher rate for our MES debt. Like we'll pay, right now we're paying 10%, but you know sometimes we pay 8%. And it's a little more flexible. We do usually like a six-month term on MES debt, and then either party can either pay it off or call it due. So that either the the lender who's given us the MES debt, which might just be an investor, maybe even an equity position, or someone else can do that. And the beauty is, now check with your securities attorney, but MES debt, if it's done as a loan, it isn't a security, and so you don't have to be accredited. So you have some more flexibility. Again, check with your securities attorney, but that opens up. So if you want to try and serve some non-accredited investors, it's much better to put them in debt positions anyways because it's a loan. It's very clear. It's exactly what they're going to make. And really different from a security because it's a loan. And non-accredited people can make loans all day long. Like there's no restrictions on making. If you're the lender lending your own money, you can make loans. So that kind of opens up, get people's wheels thinking about mezzanine debt. We can put a bank in in mezz debt. We can put a group of investors. We can put anybody we want in there. But basically, it's junior to the secured debt, but it's ahead of in the capital stack, the equity position of the investors. And so we'll pay it off first. So Mez debt gets paid off before equity investors get their capital back and their profit.
0: Awesome, man, this is fire. Can't wait to hang out with you again. We need to go kick it again and have some lunch. All right, man, let's, let's dive into the lightning round. My first question to you is, best vacation you've ever taken?
1: I have to be Cape Town, South Africa. Got to go there last year, my wife and my kids. What a stunning place. I like hiking and outdoors and ocean and mountains, and it's all that crammed together. It was amazing.
0: Favorite book of any kind?
1: What's Best Next by Matt Furman is a book about productivity and, and like faith and impact of your life, not just in work, but what's the impact of your whole life. One of my favorite books I've ever read.
0: I'll have to check that one out. I haven't heard that before. How much of your success do you attribute to mindset? Huge amount, 75. And what's the other 25?
1: I would say work ethic, persistence, (laughs) getting back up when you got your butt kicked that kind of stuff, which I guess is connected
0: to mindset. I know, I was just gonna say that sounds like mindset (laughs) to me. So maybe maybe you corrected me, maybe it's a (laughs) hundred. Best way to raise capital from your perspective, short answer on this. Mm, Trust. How long do you wanna live?
1: 110 years.
0: Can you tell me about a moment that changed the trajectory of your life?
1: I was in a bad accident. I was run over by a boat about 10 years ago. Thought I was dying, almost died. Totally changed my life.
0: Crazy. So what would you need in order to 10X your business as it is today?
1: The easy answer on the Capital Raiser show is a giant bucket of money dropped in my lap. But really, I would say it's probably world-class systems. I'm sorry, world-class people. It's really about people. There's some systems that need to support that scaling, but I'd say it's money and people.
0: What is one capital raising mistake you see people doing when they're out there raising money?
1: Being transactional or impatient, like pressure. Give me the money, quit asking questions or whatever. And just being transactional. We're all people. 100%
0: on that. How about this? Do your spiritual philosophies have anything to do with your success in business?
1: Oh, 100%. 100% overlap. How so? I believe we're created by God and I believe we're created to work. I believe work's a good thing. I believe we're supposed to create order out of chaos and we're supposed to love people and make the world better. That's what work is. And I think compensation profit comes when you do that. Serve people, make value, deliver value, make the world better. So that's 100% overlaid with what I believe about how we're made and God and the life that God has for us.
0: Yeah, I absolutely believe that. That's an amazing answer. Have you ever experienced a miracle? Well, actually you mentioned this. Have you ever experienced a miracle or had a near death experience?
1: oh yeah for sure near death it was incredible and yeah i think the hospital and nurses and multiple surgeons told me i'm very lucky to be very lucky to be alive and it's definitely changed my life it's given me a deep gratefulness and a deep sense of life is short and a clarity about what's really important in life
0: thank god last question brought to you by shanna amigo she would like to know what impact would you like to leave in the world
1: I think a lot about my kids because they're becoming adults and they're heading off to college. I want my kids to live out the values that my wife and I have and to make the world better. And if they will create families doing the same thing, that's one of the biggest legacies that I think I'll I'll leave. I would also say even with employees or work, tying back to that question, I hope I have employees and teammates and partners and vendors that are shaped by me and I'm shaped by them and we make, make each other better. So we make the world better.
0: Fantastic answers on the lightning round. Thanks for entertaining us on that part of the show. Shout out to the Capital Raiser Nation. Thanks for tuning in. Please leave us a five star written review. Shout out to our sponsors, the Family Office Club and Pitchdex.com. John, how does the audience get a hold of you?
1: Yeah, for borrowers who want to borrow money in Arizona, clinkloans.com. That's with a K. And then investors is clink funds, K L I N K funds, F U N D S.com.
0: Now, if somebody wants to get into lending for bill to rent or house flippers or any other thing, what are kind of some of the things that they need to know as they get, in, get started in that process?
1: If you're starting out as a lender in Arizona and a lot of states, but I can speak to Arizona, you can lend your own money on a certain number of transactions. It used to be five, so don't quote me, check with an attorney. But up to five loans a year with just your own money, you don't have to have a lending license, you just do it yourself. The minute you're lending other people's money, in Arizona, you have to have a lending license. And the minute you're negotiating, it's called originating, negotiating terms on a loan for money that isn't yours, you're an originator. So you either need an originator or a broker or a banker license. There's a national organization called NMLS, National Mortgage Licensing System. They handle that like real estate licenses. And so we have an Arizona originator license for a couple people in our company that do lending. The best way, at least for Arizona to do that, isn't to become a broker yourself or a banker. It's similar in the real estate world. A lot of people who want to get a real estate license. They don't become brokers first. They get a salesperson license, and they go hang out with a broker. In the lending world, I recommend exactly the same thing. Go find a broker that's good, a mortgage broker that already has the broker license. You get an originator license. Now you can originate through them and broker the loans to anybody you want, including your own fund. So that's the way we're compliant with the lending laws is we have an originator license that's hung with a broker. So we're compliant with both the federal and the state lending laws.
0: Brilliant. Any last words of wisdom for the aspiring capital raiser as they scale on their journey?
1: Love people and tell them the truth. The best advice I ever received is be really fast to tell people when things are not going well, or there's a problem, be really quick and really clear about what that is. That's, in my experience, one of the most powerful ways to build trust and relationship is tell the bad news quickly and clearly.
0: Great advice. I love that, man. This has been a blast hanging out with you, dude. We got to do it again soon.
1: (laughs) You too. You too, Ruben. Great job. Cool.
0: Cool, man. Thanks for joining us on the show. We'll catch you on the next one. See ya.
1: Take care.